Well, on behalf of the church family, I want to say another word of welcome to all of you who are visiting with us this morning. We're so glad to have you uh, join us and to worship together with us. We can't think of any place we would rather you to be than sharing together with us in God's word and singing his praises uh, as God's people. Uh, again, on behalf of the church family, welcome. I'm Pastor Thabiti, one of the three pastors here at the church. And if you're new to Anacostia River Church, uh, let me just introduce you to us in, in a couple of quick little sayings. Number one, uh, we don't take ourselves seriously, but we do take the gospel of Jesus Christ seriously. All right, so it's not about us. It's not about this church or who we think we are. We're not competing with other churches or trying to set ourselves apart from other churches unless it's just taking seriously the gospel that separates us. So if you hear nothing else from our service today, what we want you to hear is this good news about Jesus Christ and what he came to do for people like you and me, okay? The other thing I want to say just by way of introduction as a church uh, is we're a church with a, a, a focus on the four corners of the block of our neighborhood to the four corners of the globe. What that means is there are lots of churches that are bigger and will be bigger and intend to be bigger. We don't care how, about how big we are or how small we are. We care really about our neighbor and the block and reaching our neighbors. And we care about being faithful to take that message of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And that's kind of who we are. We, we are centered on the gospel. We want to see the gospel grow. We want to see people come to know Jesus right here next door and all the way across the globe. And so if you're visiting and you're looking for a church home or someplace to worship and that's your heart, then we, we, we would like nothing more and that you would share that with us and rejoice uh, in that calling together with us. Well, if you're visiting and uh, if you've been away a little while, then uh, let me remind you that we are continuing a series this morning in the Gospel of Luke. And the brothers in the aisle uh, have Bibles. If you're here and you need a Bible, uh, raise your hand and they will be glad to bring you one. If you don't have a Bible at home, let that be our gift to you. We would like nothing more than to make sure that everybody has the Word of God in their hands and in their homes, and we pray in their hearts. And so if you raise your hand, uh, they'll bring you a Bible. If you have one at home, you can drop it on the table at the end of the service. If you don't have one and you like one, please take that. Go ahead, write your name in it, make it yours, uh, and, and, and let it dwell richly in your heart. So we're in Luke chapter 18. If you're new to the Bible, when I say chapter number, that's the big number on the page. And I say verse number, that's the small number on the page. And we're going to be in Luke chapter 18, verse 1, all the way through the end of the chapter today. Luke 18, verse 1. Uh, if you're using one of those Bibles provided, that's on page 877. Page 877. We've called this series Getting to Know Jesus. That's really what we want to do. We want to know Jesus better and better. What he's like, how he thinks, how he acts in the world. And we are, we are consumed with getting to know Jesus because Jesus is God. And in getting to know Jesus, we get to know what the Father is like. We get to know what to expect of God. We get to know how it is we can come to God through Jesus, his son. You remember the words of the call to worship? It's printed in your bulletins there. It's from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. It reads this, And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God, two things, must believe that he exists 
and that he rewards those who seek him. Now, sometimes you can take a chapter of the Bible like Luke chapter 18, and you can take a verse from some other part of the Bible like Hebrews 11.6, and you can take that one verse and it hangs over the entire chapter. That's what I want to suggest is the case with Luke chapter 18. Hanging over Luke 18, in summary, is this one verse from Hebrews 11.6. And this idea of drawing near to God based on two things. Believing that he exists and that he's the rewarder of those who seek him. As we go through Luke chapter 18, we're going to see sort of five instances where five different people come to Jesus. They are drawing near to God. And in each case, they're coming to Jesus with some question or some need or some desire. And in each case, but one, we see Jesus reward them. We see him respond to them in answer to their prayer in an act of mercy. So look with me, Luke 18, verse 1. The text starts out with Jesus telling a parable to them. The them there are his disciples. And then look down at verse 9. There he tells another parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. It's an interesting description, isn't it? Down in verse 15, you notice that we see parents bringing their infants to Jesus. And then look at verse 18. A ruler comes to Jesus, and he has a question. Verse 35 and verse 31. Verse 31, he begins to speak to the 12, his disciples. Verse 35, a blind man, a beggar, comes to him. And what we discover is that God rewards those who seek him. And that's good news for all of us who are seeking him this morning. Let's pray for us, for ourselves. Father, we pray indeed that you would reward us. We seek you now in your word. We believe that you exist and we believe that you are the rewarder of those who, who honestly seek you by faith. We were just singing a moment ago that by faith we take our stand upon the promises of your word. And, and so right now, as an act of faith, we preach your word and we listen to your word that we might have more of you. Oh, Father, speak to us through your word. Holy Spirit, help us to listen and grant us, oh Lord, the rich rewards of knowing you. And we ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we go through the text this morning, I want to make five points. Really, it's just five observations that summarize each section of this chapter. It's five ways in which we see people drawing near to Christ, and we see Christ rewarding them. And the first one is this. God rewards the elect with justice. God rewards the elect, that's just a word for his chosen, with justice. Look with me in verses 1 to 8. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. 
And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Verse 1 gives us the goal of the parable. Uh, Jesus is really trying to teach his disciples to persevere in prayer. Notice there at the end of verse 1, he's concerned that they would pray and they would lose heart. How many of you know it's easy to lose heart when you're praying? Uh, It's easy to falter. It's easy to, to quit. It's easy to sort of say, I haven't gotten an answer yet. God must not be listening. I haven't gotten an answer yet. God must not, it maybe isn't going to give me what I've been asking for. And the, and the heart is weak. You know, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, isn't it? Jesus wants to teach his disciples to continue in prayer, not to, not to give up in prayer. And so, no, he tells this parable, notice in verse 2, about a judge in a certain city. And the striking thing about this judge is he don't fear nobody. He don't fear God, and he don't fear man. In other words, he's not going to be responding to anything outside himself. Now, this is striking. In the parable, he's an unrighteous judge, but, but also in the parable, he, he represents God. Uh, for God himself is not moved by anything outside himself. This is what we call in fancy theological speak his aseity, A-S-E-I-T-Y. That his existence and, and his, his work in the world isn't dependent upon any of his creatures. He's not constrained by things outside himself. And in that way, God is the perfect impartial judge. Now, he's different from this unrighteous judge, but notice how the, how the story goes on. Verses 3 to 5, there's a widow. She's very persistent, and you see her, her claim there. She says, give me justice against my adversary. It's interesting that he should choose a widow, someone who is dependent upon others. She wouldn't have had family, and she likely wouldn't have had income. And there's someone there against which she has some beef, some adversary in which she's locked in a struggle. And so she makes her appeal to the judge for justice. And the judge at first is kind of like, you know, I ain't got time for that. You know, I I don't fear God. I don't fear man. You know, leave me alone. And then it clicks for him. If I don't answer this woman, she's going to drive me crazy. And so he relents and he gives her justice. Now, the interpretation comes in verses 6 and 7, right? Notice what Jesus says there again. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay longer over them? 
In other words, if this unrighteous judge who's unmoved by anything outside himself will, will finally relent and give justice to this widow, how much more then does God who is righteous, who's moved by compassion, moved by goodness, moved by mercy, how much more then will he give, judge, give justice to his chosen? And notice, contrary to the judge who is slow in answering this woman's question, notice what Jesus says, he will give justice speedily. Now, this is the incentive to prayer. Don't grow weary in your prayers because there is a good God who answers you, who does not fear man, who in himself is good and will respond speedily to his saints. That's what Jesus wants us to gather here. If we come to him in prayer, seeking him in faith, he will reward us, in this case, with the justice that we are seeking. It's interesting, isn't it? This text keeps repeating that word justice. It maybe rings fresh in your ears as it did mine this week. These last couple years, we've heard so much about justice, haven't we? So many pleas for justice. So many demonstrations for justice. Notice what the text says. That there is a connection between the prayers of God's people and the answer of justice from God. The surest way to get justice in this world on behalf of God's people is not by marching, however fine marching may be. The surest way to get justice in this world is not by protest signs, however appropriate that may be. The surest way to get justice certainly isn't by burning down your own neighborhoods. No, the surest way to see justice done in the world is on our knees with our heads bowed. The text says it will come speedily. Will God not give it speedily? And God's justice will be perfect and balanced and proportional. The God of the universe always does right. And here's people are called to seek justice by praying, and he will reward that seeking. It's so much sort of conversation nowadays comparing sort of the Black Lives Matters movement as a sort of continuation of the civil rights movement. I think there are ways in which that's true, but I think there are ways in which these are really two very different movements. And one way in which they're very different is on this very matter of prayer. Uh, the civil rights movement, classically in the 50s and 60s, is a religious movement. We do realize that, don't we? But the foot soldiers of that movement are Christians, and the leaders of that movement are Christians. And one of the things that is quietly kept that's true about Dr. King and about protests, we, we think so much about the marches, and we think so much about his oration. There are two other things that were really true. Before they took up a protest, they did their homework to make sure that their cause was just. That's really important. But more important than that, Dr. King laid this emphasis on spiritual preparation. Before they marched, before they protested, they called themselves to seasons of fasting and prayer. And I have to think it's by the prayers of God's people that such justice was accomplished, really, in so short a period of time. If we want justice, let us be praying people, seeking a God who himself loves justice. 
first thing we see in this text is that those who seek justice are rewarded with it when they pray. And notice the second thing here. God rewards the sinner with mercy. He rewards the saint with justice. He rewards the sinner with mercy. We see that there in verses 9 to 14, the the second scene connected to the first by the telling of another parable. So verse 9, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, that's how I imagine he sounded, God, I thank you. And I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I, he would have emphasized that, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Notice the audience in verse 9. There were some there who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. It's amazing how often those two things go together. That when we think we are righteous in ourselves, we oftentimes look down on everybody else. Uh, these were probably the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, but, but it's clear they are, they are self-righteous. And, and, and notice how Jesus pictures the Pharisee uh, in verses 10 to 13. Notice there, he first of all stands by himself. He's so good, can't nobody get close to him even in prayer. He's off by himself. And notice that he rehearses his resume. Verse 11, he he rehearses um, his contempt, really. The two things that we're told about him earlier, in the earlier verse, we see displayed even in his prayers. I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust. Adulterers, or even like this tax collector. It is striking. That's a blindness, isn't it? It may be the case that he hasn't done those particular sins. Oh, but he is like other men. He is a sinner. And he's revealing his sin even in his prayer. But he can't see it. So he rehearses his contempt. But notice also... He rehearses his self-righteousness in in verse 12. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. He's depending upon his religious exercises, isn't he? Because I'm a man who gives a little bit to the temple, because I'm a man who sometimes fasts twice a week, then I'm surely good with God. In fact, he's standing in the presence of God as if he he can do that. As if he need not bow even before God. As if his works have made him so righteous, have have made him so good, that he can come into God's presence on the confidence of his works. Contrast him to the tax collector. The tax collectors would have been people who were social outcasts. They weren't 
They weren't liked by anybody in Israel, and oftentimes they were, they were the stooges, they were the henchmen for the Roman government. They were seen as those who aided in the oppression of Israel. They were seen as crooked, as taking more than they should have taken. But notice now, the tax collector is the hero in this parable. He is, he's standing far off. I think there's humility in that. He doesn't just rush into God's presence or assume nearness with God. He's far off. And notice his humility. He bows his head in prayer, doesn't even feel good enough to lift his head toward heaven. He's not like the Pharisee, self-confident and self-righteous. I think he's aware of his sin. In fact, we know that. For look at what he prays. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on me, a sinner. No defense before God, no explanation before God, no rationalizing with God, no looking for loopholes with God. Simply the admission, Lord, I am a sinner. And because I am a sinner, I need mercy. He prays that prayer that always gets answered. Lord, have mercy on me. And notice how the Lord interprets this parable when you come down to verse 14. It says very simply that the tax collector went down to his house justified rather than the other. That word justified is key. It means righteous. He goes home with God considering him right, in right standing with him, not because of anything he's done. All he could do was confess his sin. He goes home justified because he has confessed his sin, and if you will, he's thrown himself on the mercy of God's court. And that's the only way any sinner can come to God confessing their sin, forsaking their righteousness, casting themselves upon the mercy of God in Jesus Christ, his son. And that man goes home justified. The other man who thought of himself righteous goes home unjustified, unrighteous, and unknowing. It is a terrible thing to think that you're right before God when you're not. And it is a terrible thing to try to base your righteousness before God on what you do because that will never satisfy. But it's a wonderful thing to be a sinner, head bowed, pleading for mercy and being rewarded for that plea as you seek God, rewarded with the righteousness that you know you lack because it's a righteousness that God gives through faith in Jesus Christ. They go home justified. Reading this text and Shailene just popped into my head. It feels so good to be justified. Either trust or die. You must decide. Stakes are high. What's the rest of that here? Okay, see, I caught you. Look at it. <laughs> but that chorus, it feels so good to be justified. This man went to the temple broken and bowed. But I think he left with a light step and a glad heart because he received the mercy of God as he sought him in prayer. So how do we apply this? Well, we have no case for our own righteousness, do we? 
All of us are sinners. That's a good thing for us to recognize. However cleaned up we are on the outside or however, however messed up we are on the outside, all of us are sinners. We should start there. That's just good Bible theology. All of us are sinners. But then we, we also ought to apply this by reminding ourselves not to look down on others because of their sin. Isn't that what the Pharisee does? God, I thank you I'm not like this sinner, this so-and-so and so-and-so. That attitude is not fitting for God's people, and it's not fitting for God's people who are reminded of their own sin, right? That's common to us all. But, but number three, let us be the kind of people who seek mercy and humility as a way of life. We don't stop with our sin. We have a God who forgives sin. We don't stop with our brokenness. We have a God who heals. We, we don't stop with our heads hung low, but we, we seek that God who lifts the head, who is the lifter of our head, and who, who gives light to our eyes and gives gladness to our hearts. We go to him. Let us be constant in going to him when we see our sin. Oh, we may be like the tax collector. When we first get a glimpse of our sin, we may feel that, that death. We may feel that, that dirt, and we may wish to be far off, but don't linger far off. Close the distance between yourself and God by crying out to heaven for mercy, and he will come near to you, and he will cleanse you, and he will declare you right through faith in the blood of his son through the sacrifice of his son. Because God rewards those who seek him, even sinners needing mercy. Which brings us to our third point. God rewards the humble with his kingdom. God rewards the humble with his kingdom. See that there in those three verses, 15 to 17. 17. Verse 14 really ends with um, this picture of the humble tax collector, right? He humbles himself, Jesus tells us, or excuse me, the explanation Jesus gives us in verse 14 is everyone who exalts himself will be humble, that's the Pharisee, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted, that's the tax collector. And as if that idea of humility kind of bleeds into the next three verses there. So we read this. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. It's a striking passage, just three verses. Verse 15, you get these parents bringing their infants to Jesus. And you see the disciples rebuking them for that. And you ask yourself the question, what's, what's going on in that exchange? Well, on the one hand, you see what every good parent does and ought to do. They're bringing their child to God. They're bringing their infant children to Jesus. They, they are wanting, even if, it's, if instinctively or maybe self-consciously, they are wanting the blessing of Christ upon their children. And so we do things like baby dedications, right? Or we have um, christening ceremonies. Those are sort of our modern-day equivalent, in some ways, of, of bringing our children to Christ. And so we've got these parents coming to do that, but the disciples say, no, 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 Jesus ain't got time for that. 
And the disciples in that attitude, they, they rebuke the parents, right? They, they correct them sharply. But in that attitude, they're really reflecting the attitude of their day, and in so many ways, the attitude of our day, where children have very little value. Children in that society would, would have been not considered as much, not worth as much. Certainly, their parents would have loved them, but in terms of their social standing, they, they, would, have had, they would have had none. And we see, though we see it differently, we see that same attitude reflected in the disciples who are saying, don't bring your children to bother Jesus. And we see it in our day as, as many, even professing Christians, reflect the, reflect the culture of today where, where we sacrifice our kids, so to speak, in inordinate work hours, in neglect, in abuse. Uh, we communicate sometimes a, a kind of low valuation of our children even when we're not at work and we're at home and, and we can't be bothered to talk with them. He comes into the room and says, Dad, boy, don't bother me now. I'm watching the Warriors. She comes into the room and says, Mom, don't interrupt me. I'm on the phone. Now, some of that can be innocent enough and low-level enough, but how often are those just little pictures of a more chronic pattern of neglect? And what are we not doing in those moments? We're not reading the Bible with our children. We're not speaking them with of Jesus, to them of Jesus. We're not in those ways bringing them to the Christ. You see, the disciples are reflecting that, that sort of attitude of the culture. And, and, and what else is in this attitude? Isn't there something in this about who can come to Jesus? And there's some assumptions in this as they rebuke the parents about bringing infants. Isn't there some assumption in this about certain persons being worthy of Jesus' time and others not? That's why I love the way the Lord responds. Notice what he does in verses 16 and 17. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And Jesus has this habit of taking people who are marginal in society, taking people who are regarded as low in society, and actually dignifying them and raising them and using them as sort of examples and symbols of everything that's great about God's kingdom. And so he takes these children who are being rebuked and pushed off and overlooked, and he says, listen, let them come to me because you know what? The kingdom of heaven belongs to people like them. And unless you, grown folks, shooing away children, Become like these little children in humility and dependence upon God. You will not enter the kingdom of heaven. For that kingdom belongs to such as these. What a remarkable thing to find in a Savior. What an amazing thing to find in God. A constant awareness and concern about the little and the marginal and the broken the so-called nobodies. And his statement to the disciples challenges us, doesn't it? Are we like these little children? Humble, dependent, trusting. Even in this room, you can observe little children looking to their parents. Uh, they're maybe a little fidgety and and looking to mom and dad for approval, for permission. 
maybe a little bit hungry and they're looking to mom and dad for a snack. Just a little bit later, they're going to trust mom and dad to strap them into the car seat or to take them to lunch or to protect them from something. This sort of constant looking up to mom and dad in dependence, in trust, in hope. That's the posture that's being recommended to us as we look to God, our Father, in dependence, in hope, in trust, in need. And here's the promise. Those who seek God that way, he will give a kingdom. He will give much more than just what we need in that moment. He will give an infinite kingdom that will not be shaken, that will not pass, will not fade, that cannot be plundered or attacked. He will give a kingdom wherein we will reign with him as kings and queens. And beloved, this is a reminder that even from infancy all the way into eternity, we were made for more than the paltry little pleasures of this life. That when God fashioned you, when he made you, when he breathed life into you and sent you into the world, he didn't send us into the world that we might be satisfied with the little things of this world. He certainly didn't send us into this world that we might be satisfied with those thieving pleasures of sin. He didn't send us into the world that we might waste ourselves on the things that we waste ourselves on, the things that that break us and destroy us. No, he created us that we might know him and be with him, find our joy in him and enjoy his kingdom and enjoy him as king. We were made for infinite pleasure and infinite joy. We were made for a kingdom and a king who brings us into his glory. And the way to it is to seek him like little children. He will reward the humble. Notice the fourth thing. God rewards the self-denying with eternal life. God rewards the self-denying with eternal life. That's what we learn from verses 18 to 30, this, this famous passage from the Gospels where a ruler comes to Jesus. And notice in verse 18, he comes to Jesus and he asks the key question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, looking at him with sadness, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. 
When you see this passage, this ruler comes to Jesus, and again, he, he asked the right question. What must I do to gain eternal life? John chapter 17, verse 3, defines eternal life this way, that this is eternal life, that they might know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is the knowledge of God, knowing God personally, and knowing God personally through his son, Jesus Christ. So the man had come to the right place with the right question. But notice how the Lord responds to him. He says basically that in order for you to have this life, you must be clear on three things. Number one, you must be clear on who Jesus is. Verse 19, why do you call me good? Only one is good, namely God. And that's not Jesus saying he's not God. That's Jesus testing whether the man himself has come to the point to confess him as God. The second thing that Jesus says must be known is what God requires of us. Verse 20, to keep the law. Now, he doesn't require us to keep the law in our own strength, and this man doesn't understand that. As Jesus ticks off the second table of the law, things that we are to do with our neighbors, this man says, all those things I have kept since my youth. And God requires the perfect keeping of his law, but the first table of the law, the first table of the law, are duties that we owe to God, mainly that we would have no God but God. And so the next thing Jesus says is, there's one thing you like, that first table of the law. And there's one way to demonstrate it practically. Sell everything you have, distribute to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. Then come and follow me. The text says, the man went away sad. It's not just that he had wealth, it's that his wealth had him. He was rich in things, but poor in spirit. And Christ had come to him and said, listen, know who I am. I am God. And know what I, respect, the, uh, I expect, the perfect keeping of the law, but not from you. I will do that. I will satisfy the law. But I recall you to sort of show this faith, a kind of faith that will relinquish your life so that you might have eternal life. I require you to lay down the things of this life, to forsake them so that you may have me. Christ is the kind of God who's so big that we can't have things from this world in our hand and have him in our hands too. He displaces all those things. He pushes out all those things. He alone will be God. He alone will be trusted. He alone will be adored. And you see here the deception and the strength and the power of riches. This man is sitting here talking to God. He's talking to the Savior. He's asking the question about how can I live forever? Which, by the way, means how can I outlive my riches, which are never forever? And Jesus gives him the roadmap. Jesus opens up who he is and opens up what he expects and opens up the call of discipleship. And this man, looking at Jesus, comparing his things to Jesus, chooses his things and goes away sad. Now, isn't that interesting? He kept what he had, and still he was sad. Well, that sounds a little Dr. Seuss when I listen to it. He kept what he had, and still he was sad. Which is bad. Which is bad. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you, Dad. <laughs> 
And beloved, that man's reaction, that's the biography of a lot of people today. They look at what they have and they look at Jesus. They look at what they have and they look at Jesus. They look at Jesus and they look at what they have. And then they walk away with what they have. And they walk away with this inexplicable sadness. This doesn't satisfy me anymore, but I can't let it go. That's why it's idolatry. I'm sad with it, but I must have it. That's why it's idolatry. And so many people are like Gollum and Lord of the Rings. They've got their precious, their precious, and they are wasting away. And God says, if you would but turn over your hand and drop that, you may have eternal life and a kingdom with great treasures, and you may enter into my joy. But notice Jesus' reaction, too. That man walked away sad, and Jesus was sad for him. He doesn't blast the man. The text says the Lord was sad. And he was sad because of the, the stranglehold of riches on people. It says it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into heaven. And again, that's not thunder and lightning from heaven. That's a broken-hearted Savior looking at what created things does to his creatures. Now, the disciples, they still ain't there yet, are they? They still thinking like the world. So they're like, yo, if the rich people can't be saved, who can then? You see how they're thinking. They're thinking that, yeah, riches in this life give you access. Riches in this life give you ease. Riches in this life give you status. And they seem to think that riches in this life means that God must be approved with you and you must have access and status and ease with God. So if the rich man, if the ruler can't be saved, ain't no chance for the rest of us. Is how they're thinking. They've not yet come to understand the kingdom and the way the kingdom works. And so Jesus says two things. Number one, he says, with man, this is impossible. With God, not so much. It's impossible for a camel to go through an eye of a sewing needle, but God is the kind of God who can make that happen. It's hard for a rich man to be saved, but not, but not impossible because God, who is strong, who is omnipotent, can change even a rich man's heart. He can call a man to himself and away from his riches and save such a man. Nothing is too hard with God. But notice the second thing that the Lord says. He says not only is nothing too hard for God, he can make a camel go through the eye of a needle, but he also says it's worth it. Peter is beginning to get it. Peter was like, well, look, we left a whole lot of people and a whole lot of stuff. What we going to get in verse Verse 28 there, and Jesus says in verse 29, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Beloved, there is a way to have your cake and eat it too. It's by coming to Christ. Now, if your cake is all the things of this world, you're going to have to let that go. But Christ promises a better cake. He promises a better feast, in fact. He says, yes, to follow me, it will cost you everything. You will, in one sense, have to give up everything, husband and wife, mother and father, uh, children and homes. But it's worth it. Because in this life, 
I will reward you. And in the life to come, I will give you eternal life. You see, this rich young ruler was a bad businessman. He's a bad businessman. He was offered ultimate profit, and he settled for pennies. He was offered a kingdom and glory eternally, and he settled for a few dollars and a little position for a few years. It's a bad trade. It's a bad trade. So when Christ calls you to come follow him, he will certainly make demands upon our lives. In fact, he will demand our entire life. And he will begin to rearrange our lives. And so he will move us out of relationships. He will take us out of relationships that are sinful. He will take us out of relationships that are displeasing. Relationships that we once loved. And it will feel like a cutting off the arm and a gouging out the eye. And he will call us to make stands. Stands against people that we used to submit to. So if mom and dad are not yet Christians and don't understand your faith, you will be called to stand for Christ despite their misunderstanding. And he will call us to to make a cost, to pay a cost in taking those stands. We have brothers and sisters all over the world right now, in the Muslim world, in the Indian, uh, India, in Indian world, and in various places in the world who, for the name of Christ, are being kicked out of their families and worse, are having their homes and their churches burned down and worse for the name of Christ. But Christ says it's worth it. I will give you brothers and sisters, houses and lands a hundredfold in this life and better yet I will give you an eternal kingdom in the life to come. Oh, follow Christ. It will be costly but it will be worth it. He will reward you if you seek him. If you come to him humbly denying yourself he will give you a kingdom and an everlasting life in which to enjoy. There's only one person in this text who in a way unrewarded. It was the man who would not deny himself, who trusted his treasures rather than Christ. Don't be that man. Which brings us to our final point. God rewards the blind with sight. Rewards the blind with sight. This is what we see in verses 31 to the end of the chapter. And taking the 12, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, 
Let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Now, I think Luke is being very intentional in the ordering of this section. In verses 31 to 34, notice verse 31, he takes the 12, the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles aside. And he has a private meeting with them. And in his private meeting with him, he relays to him, to them, the events that will take place in Jerusalem. When they get to Jerusalem, he says, he's going to be delivered over to the Gentiles. And they're going to put him on trial. And they're going to mock him, treat him shamefully, spit upon him. They're going to flog him, and they're going to kill him. They're going to crucify him. And three days later, he's going to be raised from the grave. He's predicting his crucifixion and his resurrection. It's meant to be inside knowledge, what he's instructing his apostles with. But notice verse 34. They understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them. It's as though a veil is over their eyes, and they didn't grasp what was said. Now, that's striking when you come to verse 35, and you got this man, a blind man, who's a beggar. Now, in that day, begging was actually a profession. It, it was respectable. It was how many folks would have earned their living. So this man, blind, he lost his sight at some point. The text doesn't tell us when. He's, he's reduced to making a, a, a living any way that he can, namely by begging. And so he's sitting by the gate, and, and there's a crowd pressing by, and he's he, he blind, but he can hear. And he said, what's going on? And the people say, man, Jesus of Nazareth is coming through. And notice his reaction right away. He, I imagine, sprung to his face and said, Jesus, Jesus, son of David. Now that's striking. Son of David is a title in the Old Testament for the Messiah the descendant of David who would sit on David's throne forever, who would accomplish all God's plans for his people. <laughs> Why that striking? He was not in on that private meeting with the 12 where Jesus used another messianic title, the Son of Man, referring to Daniel chapter 7, where the Son of God comes to Daniel and receives glory and power and authority from God to rule the nations. He didn't hear that private Bible study. He wasn't with them. The disciples who had the private study couldn't see it. But the blind man sitting by the street could see better than them. Jesus, son of David. And there's that prayer again, beloved. I pray we pray it. Have mercy on me. My grandmother and their generation, man, I didn't, I didn't understand at the time. But they just had different times in different ways where stuff would happen. And they say, Lord, have mercy. I see some of y'all got grandmas like that too. And it ain't have, it's have mercy. <laughs> Lord, have mercy. Just this constant crying out for mercy. And I didn't know it at the time, but I think by wisdom and age and experience, that little phrase was filled with more meaning and more depth than I knew. And as I'm reading the Bible, I'm beginning to understand this a little bit. And as I'm getting a little bit older, I'm beginning to understand this a little bit, that this blind man sitting by the gate was a lot like my grandmother. Lord, have mercy. And he's seeing 
Not with his physical eyes, but with the eyes of faith. He's believing that if he seeks Jesus, Jesus will reward him. He's believing that if he calls out upon the name of Christ, the son of David, that the son of David will hear him and will respond to him. And notice, the people again are rebuking him. Man, Jesus ain't got time for poor blind people. That's what the crowd thinks. Listen, beloved, never let Christians keep you from Christ. Never let professing religious people get between you and the Savior. We we misrepresent Jesus a lot, and the things we think we value aren't always the things that Jesus values. And I'm so glad that this blind man, he doesn't stop. He calls out again, Lord, have mercy on me. Son of David, hear my plea. And Jesus says, bring him over here. He says, man, what do you want me to do for you? Oh, the Lord writes this man a blank check in prayer. It's the same check he writes us. He says, children, what would you have me do for you? I've given you Christ. How would I not with him also give you all things? What a blank check we have in prayer. He says, tell me what you want. And this man says, to recover my sight. To recover my sight. To see again. To recognize colors and to to be able, not just by memory, but now by sight again, to perhaps see the face of my wife or to look into the face of my children, to see trees swaying in the breeze and blades of grass fall beneath my feet. Oh, Lord, I would rather see life again. Would you open my eyes? I love the story of Fanny Crosby, that saint that wrote so many hymns, blind from a young age. And someone well-meaning talking to Fanny Crosby, talking about how he wishes she were not blind, how he is mourning that she was blind, and and how he, he, he bet she wishes that she were not blind too. And Fanny Crosby said, oh no, oh no. Effectively, I, I trust Christ with my blindness. And maybe if I wasn't blind, I wouldn't have written so many hymns. And then she says this. She says, when I'm in heaven and my eyes are open, the first face I will see is my Savior's. She's longing for that day. When this man comes to Jesus and says, give me my sight. And Jesus says, You have your sight. Your faith has made you whole. The first thing that flooded into this man's eyes was the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David, the savior of the world. Oh, I long to see him look upon his face, that wonderful face, full of glory face so full of glory that when our eyes are open on that final day and we look into it, we will then be transformed into the very glory that we look at. Oh, to see the Savior will be the highest happiness of heaven. Of all that's promised in the kingdom, of all the rewards, of all the blessings, of all of the treasures of of infinite worth, none will compare to that moment that turns into eternity when we lock our eyes on the face of Christ. Then, beloved, you will be satisfied. You will be glad for sight. 
You will no longer take seeing for granted. You will see with perfect vision the perfect face of the perfect Savior. And all of his perfection will make glad the weary heart, will strengthen the tired soul, will replace all of our struggle with infinite joy. That's why the text ends by saying, this man praised God. And when we see him, brother, we will praise him too. There will be nothing like seeing Jesus. Ultimately, he rewards us with himself. In all of his giving, in all of his answering of prayer, whether it's a blind man begging for sight, whether it's a parable of a widow begging for justice, whether it's us asking for whatever it is we need, in the end, we will get those things and we will get Christ. And Christ will be the greater part. The key question was asked earlier in the chapter, around verse 8 or 9. The Lord finishes that first parable about praying and not ceasing and not growing weary. And he asked this question. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? That's his question for us now. Are we people who believe? Are we people who trust? Are we people who rely upon him? I think he will find faith. He gives faith. He keeps us in the faith. And it's for us to rejoice at having been brought in. And perhaps you're here this morning and you're not yet in this faith. Faith is a word we use frequently. It simply means trust, depend, rely. And this faith, the object of this faith is Jesus Christ. And so the question is, do you trust, depend, and rely on Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for your sin and to provide you righteousness before God? It's both those things. We don't want to be the Pharisee who think we're righteous in ourselves and look down on others. No, our righteousness, if it's going to be one that pleases God, has to come from Jesus. But we also can't come to God in our sin, so we must be like the tax collector, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Confess that sin and seek God's cleaning from that sin. And Christ does both. He dies on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, but he's raised from the grave three days later, the Bible said, just as Jesus predicted, for our righteousness, for our justification before God. And now he calls all men everywhere to repent of their sins and to believe in Christ, to trust him as their God, to follow him as their Lord to depend upon him as their provider. And all who look to Jesus that way are justified, are forgiven, receive a kingdom, eternal life, and one day will see him face to face and will have their souls filled with joy forever. That's God's offer to you this morning if you are not yet a Christian. It's his free offer. All you need to do is accept it. If you want to know more about that, 
talk with me, talk with any of the pastors or the members here after the service. We love nothing more than to explain to you how to follow Jesus and be saved. Christian, this is your Savior. Delight in him, both now and always. He rewards those who seek him, even us today. Let's pray together.